There is a lot that can be said about the Drow and how they have been portrayed over the years. But one thing you can only say if you want to be wrong is that they were never meant to be a good line character option. Two of the classes allowed to drown AD&Ds on Earth Darkanawa, Ranger, and Cavalier, both classes that required you to be good aligned. Driss was likely a Ranger because it was an option from the time Drow were introduced as player options, not the other way around. I do so love me some Driss to Erden, but really, it's Artemis and Terry that was the man. I loved his Emerald Dagger and Chakron's Claw, and then he got rid of Chakron's Claw because it was cursed, and there was a demon that was trying to possess him. And anyways, there's been like 40 books of, of lore for like all this years. I mean, just read the novels. I mean, maybe don't read the novels. There's like 40 of them. And now we present to you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time, while we both love lots of other RPGs. D&D has provided us with something to talk about for a year now. It has been a year, hasn't it? Has. It has. Hi, I'm Ange, and I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew, and I've been running the Gnome Cast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. And in 2021, I became head gnome, and so I'm in charge of the whole thing right now. And I am Jared. I'm the review gnome at Gnome Stew. I've been gaming since roughly 1985, and in addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. After we look at the games we're running in the campaign journal, we'll be looking at why people choose the species they choose to play in our D&D games. Then we're going to have some recommendations of D&D-related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. My campaign journal is a little light this time around. I am not currently running anything, but I am still a player in, I think, three different games. Jared is going to talk about his game that I am playing in, and I'm sure I'll have some interjections when we get there. I also played in my buddy Scott's Undermountain game, though this time we decided to take a break and head back to Waterdeep for a bit. There's a mechanic in Undermountain where the longer you spend in Undermountain, the more detrimental the effects can be on you. Like, it's kind of like an addiction type thing. I think the the way it was described to me is the longer you're down there, the more you want to stay and keep going. And uh, we had reached the point where we were starting to have to make saves to work against that. So we decided that after we cleared the swamp level, yes, I know it's a dungeon and there's a swamp <laughs> level, but there you go. After we cleared that, we would head back to Waterdeep for a little bit. And Scott decided he wanted to give us a little bit of a change of pace rather than, you know, just hand waving that we spent time in Waterdeep and then go right back to it. So he decided to grab an adventure from Keys from the Golden Vault. So we got invited to a party. Ooh, I like that one. I remember that from when I reviewed it. <laughs> He actually came to me because Scott and I bought each other keys from the Golden Vault for our birthdays, which basically means we each bought it for ourselves, but <laughs> said we were buying it for the other person for our birthday because our birthdays are very close together. And I had read the, like the first two or three, but hadn't gotten that far yet. So he, I'm like, you're safe. Go for it. <laughs> it's been pretty fun so far, although I did run into a bit of frustration with my fellow players because, first of all, they have not been keeping track of money. <laughs> I have always played the accountant in my D&D games where I keep track of the money coming in and all of that, most of the time, for at least my regular group. And when we were playing this campaign in Astral, I was doing my typical accounting, writing everything down. But then Astral kind of went belly up because 
it wasn't financially viable, so they just shut the whole site down. And so we switched from Astral to Shard, and Shard makes it so that I don't have to play Accountant because it just automatically divvies up the money. Mm -hmm. Problem is, is no one wrote down what they had when we left Astral. So <laughs> here my character is with over 12,000 gold, and everyone else has like, I only have, have 3,000. And I'm like, I told you how much you have when we switched platforms. And the GM did a little bit of like, you know, gave everyone a little bit of a bump so everyone had a little more. It wasn't quite as bad as in the, the Marodi campaign one where I'm like, look, it's not my problem. You guys aren't writing this down. We also had a, as a situation where it was like, okay, we're going to be staying in Waterdeep for a couple of weeks. It's like, so where are you staying? And one of the players, uh, his character had originally been played in a Dragon Heist campaign. So he has rooms at the Troll Skull Inn still. So that's where he was going to be. I had said the last time we were in Waterdeep that Selena was getting an apartment where she could store some of her stuff and just keep it, you know, while they're away. But a couple of the players are like, I don't, where am I going to stay? I don't know. It's like, it's goddamn Waterdeep. You're rich. <laughs> Get your own apartment. I don't want to pay money. I don't want to pay rent. I, it's it's fake money in a <laughs> fake game where you can have a nice apartment if you want. And then and then we got to the shopping before the party where it was like, okay, we need to we need to look nice. And like, ah, <laughs> like I told the half orc sorcerer that Selena was dragging her to a spa where we were going to get her a manicure and everything, and then go buy her a dress. And she's like, but I, you can't go adventuring in a dress. I'm like, you're a sorcerer. You could go adventuring in your underwear. <laughs> you know, so we, we had a little bit of back and forth on that. And I'm just like, come on, people, you're rich now. <laughs> I think I talked about the Night's Dark Terror session the last time we recorded. I remember lots of goblins. Yeah, there were lots of goblins. Uh, we haven't had a chance to play that one again. <sighs> sometimes the summer is an abundance of gaming and sometimes the summer is avoid of gaming because everyone's vacations start conflicting with each other and so this coming weekend should have been a night's dark terror game but instead i'm going to be running a play test of a new tales from the loop scenario what you mean it's not like when i was in high school over the summer and we would play like four times a week and one of those uh, times was probably like eight hours on a weekend and <laughs> You know, I know that that gaming wasn't necessarily good gaming, but man, do I miss those days. <laughs> so in our campaign, everybody made it home. They're on the prime material plane. Yay! We got to sleep <laughs> in our own beds and take a bath. One of the uh, first things that they found out about once they got home is their ranger friend who they delegated one of their multiple jobs that was coming in. They delegated this job to the ranger, and he was hunting down these dragon flesh abominations, which were basically like golems that were pieced together from dead dragons, which in the Marodi Empire is, you know, seen as a very, very bad thing to desecrate the bodies of dragons in this way. Well, that ranger managed to track down the Knoll Blood Mage who was making these abominations, and in the last second, this giant chimera showed up and like bit the head off of one of them and was, was very upset with the ranger and his party of hunters for having tracked down the rest of these abominations. And what they came to find out is that this was part of a political ploy by one of Yurazaza's political rivals to try and make her look bad and potentially 
move this royal chimera into being considered for the Morza in the Marodi Empire. Now, normally a chimera, even though it's part dragon, is definitely not anything major enough that any of these dragons would be impressed by them. But this is a royal chimera, which is a very big chimera that is in, uh, I believe it's Tome of Beasts 3. Um, this is a chimera that has basically taken over all of the other chimeras in the region, and they have more raw magical power than other chimeras, but Yurazaza still considers that a, uh, a an affront to dragonkind. Thus, she has tasked the PCs with hunting down this abomination and killing her. That just happened to dovetail with another quest, which is a priest of Sagotan, who is the uh, the dragon that lives under the seas, is very upset that the Isle of Midnight, this isle where the hags have their uh, base of operations, and which is sacred to uh, Hecate, is partially connected to the Plane of Shadows. So this priest has given them a pearl, which will decouple the island from the Plane of Shadows so that Sagotan can sink it should he desire to do so. And all of that dovetails with Kazina's plan, which is to save her sister from Mother Heartstopper, who is the... Uh, the night hag who is the head of the coven that is on the Isle of Midnight. So everything kind of converged there. <laughs> I liked having Kazina have a moment where she could basically go to Yurazaza and be like, I want to do your job, but I've got something else to do first. <laughs> you know, and thankfully they dovetailed so she didn't need to eat Kazina. <laughs> yeah. It's always bad when your boss is a dragon and you go to ask for an exception on the job. <laughs> so... Kazina went to her uh, contact, the smuggler, the horologist, who got them another one of their neat smuggling boats that is equipped to, uh, for nighttime running, so it's hard to detect. And since none of the party was particularly good at piloting sea craft, they also ended up with a pilot who is a, a smuggler rat folk captain named Captain Shiv. He's awesome. Arr, of course he is. <laughs> He's absolutely ridiculous, but also, he has so far proven to be a very good pilot. <laughs> yes, as they were sailing out to the island, I first had all of the people on the boat make a stealth check to see if they made too much noise and it carried out over the ocean. But then at the last minute, as this uh, wave is uh, is cresting, they see uh, Naklavi, I believe it's pronounced, which is a, a Scottish fey creature that is kind of a, a human merged with a horse with no skin on it. They're kind of terrifying. Yes. <laughs> Which the funniest part of that was we had people find this in like multiple books at the same time. Like someone was looking at a regular folktale book. Someone else was looking in the uh, the basin book. These are kind of horrifying. And they're sea creatures, even though they're a horse with no skin, with a human with no skin on top of them. I mean, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but I don't remember whether it's Irish or Scottish, but either way. There's lots of ocean around them. <laughs> At the last minute, because they were quiet enough, the captain managed to steer the boat just along the bottom end, edge of this wave so that they were kind of sideways and just under the creature's uh, view, and they managed to sail up to the island without fighting it. When they got to the island on foot, they met with the quickling that was the last survivor of a group of quicklings that ambushed them and tried to kill them, and they didn't kill this one quickling, and they've run into him a couple times and this time he had basically he likes two out of three of his bosses and he's kind of hoping the adventurers can bring peace back to the island so he can just work for the the two hags that aren't quite as uh ambitious as mother heartstopper is 
because she scares them. <laughs> yeah, and and you know honestly, Kazina would be fine going straight for Mother Heartstopper. <laughs> you know, and she's fine with the idea of going to the other two sisters and being like, "Look, back off." But we have the not paladin paladin in the party whose first suggested tactic was to just set the forest on fire. Yes. And I realized after after we had stopped playing, I'm like, my sister might be in there, dude. <laughs> so no, we're not setting the forest on fire. Yeah, I was kind of wondering the degree of uh, indiscriminate collateral damage the rest of the party was going to uh... yeah well i th I, th I think i think Marin would be happy to just burn it all to the ground <laughs> so yeah their their quickling friend acquaintance provided them the directions to both sister bark tour and anti-blood sack the other two uh hags on the island so that maybe they can negotiate something and perhaps withdraw their support from mother heartstopper before they confront her directly and everyone decided after, well, okay, first, Marin decided to burn down the forest. Then everyone else decided they would rather go talk to Sister Bork to her. <laughs> and uh, in her part of the island, they ran into some troll vine skeletons, which are these skeletons that are animated by vines, but they aren't undead. They're actually plants, but they keep the trolls uh, regenerative abilities. So they fought a few of those. And on top of that, when they went to rest, they barely avoided running into a weeping Trent, which is, you know, like a normal Trent, except that it oozes this uh, black sap out of its eyes and it's acidic. I probably should have said something because it didn't seem like a good idea to take a long, re a short rest, but <laughs> everyone else kind of seemed adamant about it. And I'm like, hey, we fought one thing so far. One thing. <laughs> Let, let's keep moving. But they wanted to take a short rest. So there we go. Thankfully. You just barely managed to stay stealthy enough that it didn't interrupt you in the middle of that rest. But yeah. yes, I, I kind of wanted to get across the idea that, yes, I will be checking for encounters if you do stop and take a uh, short rest and something may show up and, and uh, ruin that short rest on this island. <laughs> it is rather inhabited. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm hoping everybody enjoys that. I am enjoying coming up with the different personalities of the coven and making different parts of the island a little bit different for the experience. So we'll see how this goes as they continue to explore the island. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it. It seems like we may have uh, talked about our games enough here, so let us lean into the uh, workshop. Welcome to the Dungeon Master's Workshop. Pieces have changed a lot over the course of D&D. Originally, the available species in D&D hewed pretty close to those folks seen in Tolkien. Elves, dwarves, halflings, and half-orcs with the addition of gnomes. The rules for playing these species were strict, ostensibly to make humans the most attractive option in the game. <laughs> yeah. Over the years, restrictions on non-humans have opened up, and the types of fantasy that D&D has incorporated, including who gets to be protagonist, has expanded. Characters with extraplanar origins and anthropomorphic humanoid animal folk are much more common now than in any previous edition of D&D, and there is less concern with forcing humans into the role of the most desirable option in the game. So, Ange, with all of that in mind... What are some of the most restrictive rules that you remember about species when you first started playing D&D? A lot of it is very fuzzy for me. I remember there were restrictions on stats mm -hmm. based on which species you played. Like if you wanted to play a fighter and you wanted a good strength, you wanted to be a human because otherwise your strength couldn't get above certain levels. It wasn't like you could have every single 
species with a max 18 or whatever in a stat. There were restrictions on what classes you can play. Like you said, a lot of this comes out of D&D growing out of the idea to emulate Tolkien. And in the original, very first versions of D&D, Elf was a class. <laughs> dwarf was a class. You didn't get to be an elf whatever or a dwarf whatever or a halfling whatever. That was just what your class was. Again, it has been many, many years since I played those versions. There's many, many reasons why I stopped <laughs> playing D&D. Although 2nd edition was better than 3rd edition, it still had a lot of those, those restrictions. Now... I will also say that a lot of my feelings about this are based on my experiences as a player, because a lot of what I felt allowed to play was based on the attitudes of the group I was playing with. Uh -huh. In my original D&D &D group, where I was invited to play by Good Tom, <laughs> his friend Bad Tom had very, very specific feelings on how an elf should be played, and therefore no one else was allowed to play an elf but him. Oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember I was allowed to play a half-elf, but he would spend any role-playing moments insulting my character because I didn't have a proper heritage. Uh, um, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That sounds like the opposite of fun. <laughs> oh, it very much was. I... I really think back on those days sometimes and I'm like, how did this hook me? Because some of these people were awful and some of these games were not actually what I think is fun now. But <laughs> apparently it was fun enough and engaging enough back then that I was hooked. Um, but yeah, there was still a lot of that social dynamic tied in who gets to play what. What's really interesting to me is looking back over some of those rules, too. They were even more restrictive than you might remember, because it wasn't just that you got a bonus to this ability score and a penalty to this one. And, you know, dwarves couldn't be wizards and, you know, they could only be, you know, thieves up to fifth level. There was even things like you had to have like a minimum of 10 in this ability score and 12 in this ability mm -hmm. score, and you didn't get any bonuses. So if you didn't roll high enough to have those ability scores that high, you didn't qualify for being that species. Oh, yeah. There were a lot of players who back in those days would end up having to default to human because they didn't mm -hmm. roll well enough on their stats to be anything other than a human. And they ended up being a mediocre human as it was. I don't have a 12 dexterity, guys. I can't be an elf. <laughs> because, of course, there are no clumsy elves anywhere. <laughs> no. Oh, my goodness. And then what the other thing that gets me, too, is if you look at the level restrictions, in first edition, some of them are so punitive. It's like, oh, you can get to up to fifth level in a class, or maybe you can uh -huh. get up to eighth level. And if it's something your your species really likes doing, you might get up to tenth level. And it was like, this seems like ridiculous. I did notice Unearthed Arcana was like the first one that kind of threw out a bunch of those those limits and it didn't get rid of all of them. But it bumped a lot of the ones that were like in that five range up to 10, and it bumped a lot of those 10s into 15s. And for a lot of species, it came up with, you know what, if you're a half elf and you're a bard, forget about it. You don't have a limit. Let's also take note of the fact that classes were limited. So experience was handled differently by each class. So 
rogues tended to like thieves <laughs> tended to level quicker than anybody else. Mm-hmm. But then most of them had a cap on how far they could go with that. Yeah. It was kind of bonkers. Oh yeah. It was it was a minefield that you had to navigate. <laughs> yes. Um two things I did want to point out about earlier editions is that even though a lot of the early mindset of the game designers wasn't just emulating Tolkien, it was also emulating things like Bafford and Mauser and Conan, which is mm-hmm. part of that drive to most of your heroes should be human. But if you have to accommodate that one player that likes Tolkien, they can be this. <laughs> but even in these earlier editions, there were a few nods to other a little bit more out there species. In Beckme, the basic uh, expert companion master immortal rules, there were um, there was the Orcs of Thar, which actually gave you the ability to play like orcs and goblins and gnolls and things of that nature. It was kind of framed as you have to live in Thar and you are actually playing this specific, you know, all uh, orc or goblin or knoll campaign, but it was a change in thought process to what, you know, the game usually was doing. And then in 80 and D second edition, you had the complete book of humanoids, which way opened things up because that was throwing things like bugbears and, and centaurs and things of that nature in as potential player character species. So I don't think either one of those was common enough that, it was the regular mainstream experience of people playing D&D in those days, but they were there. So there was some desire for that kind of thing. I'm going to ask you now, up through AD&D 2nd Edition, why do you think most people picked the species that they did? Like we said, just said before this, a lot of what people would play was based on what they rolled. <laughs> because the idea of point buying your stats... Yeah, I that that may have been buried in one of the supplements for second edition, but I don't remember ever doing it until third edition. Uh, and even in third edition, we would still occasionally roll our <laughs> stats because this is how it's always been done. So it was like, what did you roll for your stats? Are they good enough for you to do anything other than a human? Uh, but I also think on a social nerd level, there was, you know, the idea to emulate certain characters from stories that we read there were a there were a lot of gms in the 80s and 90s who outright banned playing drow because they were tired of people trying to play dritz Dorden, you know or the you know the the dragonlance campaigns where every damn <laughs> angsty boy wanted to play raceland yeah you know there was a lot of that desire to emulate characters from fiction that would push people towards certain species. And I mean, I think there's even a little bit of that, even with people emulating non D and D fiction that existed before that, you know, where, you know, you have your person that wants to be the elf archer that is heavily leaning on being Legolas. I think part of um, what people were picking back then too, was for mechanical reasons. Like if you qualified for a species, Sometimes you did it for the mechanical reasons, like, hey, I, yeah. I'm a dwarf. I get a bonus to save against magic. That sounds good, especially since I'm going to play a fighter and not anything else. So, you know, that'll work there. Or, you know, I'm an elf, so I have dark vision. Oh, sorry. We're talking about earlier editions. I had infravision. <laughs> because, because the designers didn't know how uh, infrared light actually worked in their explanation of infravision. I... Still have people today ask, is low light vision, dark vision? Like, because there was, you had low light vision, you had infravision, and then it all became dark vision. And there's still people who wonder about 
Do I have low light vision where I can see a little in the dark, but not a lot? Also, some of the Underdark species had ultra vision <laughs> where they could see like radioactive isotopes, I guess. It was weird, and often people didn't quite understand the science they were referencing when they came up with these abilities. <laughs> no, no. And, you know, to to be fair, this was in the days before Google, so <laughs> you couldn't really check your sources uh, and like, okay, this guy wrote this down. It seems legit. We're going to publish this book. I will say, though, if you have never played an edition that referred to Dark Vision as Infravision, you have never had the... <clears throat> joys of DMing people trying to use the scientific way that uh, Infravision actually works <laughs> versus how the game defines it. Because, you know, you can do things like saying, I know that guy's a vampire because he's cold. He doesn't have any body temperature because I can see heat. <laughs> oh my goodness. So what species did you like to play in ye olden days? Most of my characters in those first edition, second edition days were humans or half-elves, because mm -hmm. those are what I felt like I could and was allowed to play. Yeah. When I changed game groups, it opened up a little bit, and I I do remember making a sea elf for a game, although I don't think I ever actually got to play her. I just drew a <laughs> cool picture of her. Due to my own insecurities as, you know, a late teens, early 20s adult, um, I was very careful about the class species choices I made back then i played mainly humans but i think the other two species that i did play which granted i didn't play as much because i dm most of it but i did have a friend that dm'd on a fairly regular basis so i got to play a little bit more then and i liked playing mountain dwarves and moon and or gray elves because that's the distinction between general D D and the forgotten realms <laughs> but i i like the the moon elf gray elf thing because they were usually portrayed as having an intelligence bump, and I liked that whole idea that they were more mysterious and more, like, more magic-y than other elves, and I kind of liked that <laughs> as, as a story for, you know, for my characters. And, I mean, mountain dwarves. I'm built like a tall mountain dwarf, so I mean that... <laughs> <laughs> I have the short legs. I, I'm, I kind of am shaped like a barrel, so I mean, I'm... <laughs> so I always had an affinity there. We also played an all-Mountain Dwarf campaign once in uh, AD&D, so that helped out with that, my, my appreciation of dwarves there. Okay, so if we go all the way up to 3rd edition, it changed a whole lot about how species worked in D&D. What are some of the things you remember about that change going from 2nd edition into 3rd edition? No more class restrictions! <laughs> to be completely blunt, this is what brought me back to D&D after years of avoiding it because of how frustrating I found its limitations. Mm -hmm. I felt in, you know, and I've had folks who are into old school, you know, old school style games and have very fond remembrances of first and second edition tell me that I'm wrong, but my, my feelings and memories about those two editions was I felt very boxed in. Mm -hmm. You know, I, there was specific things you could play, specific things you could do with those characters. And I got really bored of it, especially when I was introduced, the next major game I was introduced to after D&D &D was Champions, which has its own whole host of problems nowadays, but it still was a game where you could play anything. Mm -hmm. the, the question wasn't which class do you want to play? The question was, 
what do you want to play? Yeah. You know, and it wasn't trying to bend the game to fit a concept. It was like, just build the concept of what you want to play. I remember in the 90s, maybe it was in the 80s, R.A. Salvatore had a series that wasn't Icewind Dale. It was the <laughs> Cleric Quintet. And that had a dwarf character who wanted to be a druid. And it was all humorous because that's ridiculous. That's not possible. And it always stuck with me. And how, like, why? Why couldn't he be a druid? The character can talk to animals. They've established <laughs> this in the lore. So why not let the dwarf be a druid? But no, that was silly. The very first one shot I ever put together, ever, I was just starting to feel like I could be a GM, was in third edition. And I put together a bunch of characters I would have never been able to make <laughs> in the previous editions. I had a half-orc bard, I had a halfling barbarian, a gnome druid, and a dwarf wizard, <laughs> and more. Now, I know I don't know if all of these were impossible in the older versions, but they definitely weren't the norm, and it definitely felt like I was being a rebel, breaking all of these cultural constraints about <laughs> which species can be which class. I can do this, and you can't stop me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, there, there were still optimal choices to be made about species and class combinations, but you were no longer limited by the rules themselves. The rules didn't tell you no, just the optimization guided you in different directions. I think that was one of the things that I really appreciated going into third edition is because I had run enough Dragonlance, Dragonlance didn't yank off the Band-Aid and say you could play whatever, but there were more places where in Dragonlance you could play different classes that weren't allowed even in second edition. If you were a Hill Dwarf, you could be a Ranger. And I remember seeing stuff like that and thinking, oh, that's cool. And it, it was just yeah. like giving them one more option was like this revelatory thing. Like, <laughs> so, you know, coming into third edition, I remember when I first read it, when I first read the player's book, I was rereading it, making sure, did I miss something? I don't see where it's telling me what species can't be what, what class. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, in the broader logic, if you weren't trying to, in a strange way, create this niche protection where if you wanted to play a dwarf, you could not play a wizard. It made sense for a lot of these species to have some of these classes. Like, mm -hmm. it makes perfect sense to have a dwarf evoker that is a war wizard that is planning on how to blow up anything that's going to sneak into their uh, into their fortresses, because that's a very dwarven thing to do, is to blow things up. <laughs> I remember in um, Neverwinter Nights, which was an early video game using 3rd edition, like, they very happily put a dwarf monk... <laughs> yeah as one of your, your companion characters. <laughs> you know, like, here you go, have a dwarf monk. Yeah, and he was a dwarf of a long death, which is like, I, I, I love that, that whole faction thing there too, but I won't go too far into it. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, that was great. And he had some great creepy dialogue choices in that game too. <laughs> I didn't use him as much as I probably should have because I'm like, oh, he's evil. I don't want to use an evil character. <laughs> there are a few weird rules that I had almost forgotten about in third edition, looking back on these like favored class. For one thing, in the earlier editions, we didn't even touch on this, but like you could not just freely multi-class. Demi-humans, which is what they called, you know, species that weren't human, could be certain combinations of classes, but it wasn't wide open. Even if you could be that that class, you couldn't necessarily be any multi-class that you wanted to with that class. Like if you are a halfling, you could be a druid, according to Unearthed Arcana, but you couldn't be a fighter druid. But 
if you were a half elf, you could be a fighter druid. Well, <laughs> all that's gone except favored class still kind of kept in this idea that you have a favored class and you don't have an XP penalty as long as one of the classes that you're advancing is that favored class. Yeah. So they didn't tell you you couldn't be a class, but again, like you were saying, there is certain optimizations that it, it kind of chipped away at. Yeah, they didn't tell you you couldn't do these other things, but they told you this is your optimal path. And obviously, if you had a negative in an ability score, that did set you back, especially if you were playing in a point by or, you know, standard array situation, which became much more normal in third edition. You know, being two points behind an ability score meant that you're definitely not going to be as good at that part of the job as somebody that either didn't get a penalty or got a bonus for it. We could probably do a whole episode talking about rolling stats versus oh my goodness. point by, because I have thoughts. <laughs> Putting a pin <laughs> in character generation rules. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that I had almost completely forgotten about was level-adjusted monsters. <laughs> there was a thing on every monster in the monster manual that said... Basically, if you were going to play this thing, it would count as a character with this many extra levels if you played them. And what was really rough is there were two really popular options, the Tiefling and the Asimar, that were both plus one level adjustment, which meant an Asimar or a Tiefling shouldn't come into the party until the party is second level, or they shouldn't be able to start getting levels until everybody in the party is third level and then they'll be second level. I vaguely remember dealing with this in an Eberron, an early Eberron campaign where my buddy Doug played a goblin sorcerer named Iknara. <laughs> uh, and we had to like do the whole level adjustment thing for him. Mm. Which, but I think it worked out in his favor because he was a goblin. My daughter, her very first character she ever played was a half ogre, which had a level adjustment, but she wanted to play a half ogre. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And the other thing that was really interesting was Savage Species did this thing where it turned certain monsters into classes. So, for example, if you wanted to play a... Let's, let's throw out one of the wilder ones. If you wanted to play a planetar, you know, you wanted to play an angel, <laughs> there was like this 16-level class that you had to take. And by the time you got to 16th level, you pretty much had all of the abilities that a planetar had in the game. And then you could start taking other classes. You could not multi-class out of your species class until you maxed out the progression. And this was a, it was an interesting thing. We played around with it in some of my games and it came up every so often, like one of the rule books would give you that progression for some kind of non-standard species. I know like um, the uh, Dragonlance books that came out had a few of the, the, stranger species where they had that that progression it usually was for not you know major ones like a planetar where it was only like a a three or four level thing and then you were done being that creature level and now you can take regular levels <laughs> there was a rule for everything in third edition there really was there really was it it opened up the door and then they basically would throw roadblocks in front of you <laughs> So do you think how, how species worked in 3rd edition changed how and why people picked these species going into this edition? Oh, absolutely. Um, it definitely opened the options up significantly. Now, many people still chose the optimal choice, 
and there were still a lot of players from previous editions who had preconceived notions about which species could and should be played. Mm -hmm. But I think it started us on the, I think it was truly when we started on this journey of basically opening up the variety um, and making it more about what the players wanted to play rather than what was supposed to be ideal for that story type. Yeah. You may not, I, I agree. I think even though it wasn't optimal to play, say, a dwarf bard because they got a, a hit to their charisma, just the fact that you could do it meant there were going mm -hmm. to be some people that were okay with being a little bit further down that progression path and playing that dwarf bard. And on top of that, there were things where your abilities didn't hinder something. It may not have been optimal for doing that thing, but it didn't hinder it. Like, for example, as I mentioned, it was real easy to be a dwarf ranger. I mean, there's nothing really mm -hmm. that kept them from being a decent ranger in that, you know, in third edition. So it definitely, I, I, I do think a lot more people were able to envision what they wanted to play without jumping through a lot of hoops. Yeah, very much so. So did you have any favorite species from third edition that shifted from your previous thoughts? I am a huge fan of the Eberron species, uh, specifically Changelings, Kalashtar, Shifters, and Warforged. <laughs> um, we, my group started playing Eberron pretty much right as it came out, which was within a year or two of me getting back into gaming and getting back into playing D&D, because 3rd edition <laughs> didn't suck. Um, and I developed a great fondness for the Eberron setting as a whole, but then specifically those species. Um, each one had a fun flavor and worked really well in the setting, mm -hmm. and I think I have played each one at this point, except for the Warforged. I had a long-running Kalashtar... She started as a Scion mix of multi-class mess and when we rekindled that game for fifth edition she became a blade singer wizard i have had a couple of changelings i absolutely adore and i've had a shifter that was a lot of fun to play mm -hmm. so i really am fond of the what eberron added to the species options of the game and i think third edition really did have a lot of neat options that it started exploring when it came to other playable species um mm -hmm. one of my favorites that came about from third edition were goliath which have become kind of a mainstay now but like i've always liked giants and this idea that you have this kind of a half giant species that was a a standard player option that you could play i loved that like i yeah. i liked those right off the bat and you know what my love for shield slash mountain dwarves did not abate in third <laughs> edition in part because i could do some cool things that i couldn't do with other dwarves because I could, I love rangers and I could have a mountain dwarf, which I loved and a ranger, which I loved. And it was the same character. And also I could have a mountain dwarf that threw fireballs. So what's not to love there? <laughs> I love dwarves that throw fireballs. The dwarf wizard for that one shot I ran had the physical description of the fact that his beard was always singed. <laughs> that is awesome. Now we get into fourth edition. And I believe one of the biggest shifts in 4th edition, besides the game itself being a big shift, <laughs> was that this is the first edition of D&D &D where all of the playable species were only additive. In other words, you got bonuses for the things, for your ability scores that the species was supposed to be good at, but you didn't get negatives to anything. 
I think that was a huge improvement on, op- again, continuing to open up that door to say, let your imagination run wild, play whatever you want. And, you know, without having to take that negative, it meant you weren't penalized for wanting to play something a little more unique. Mm-hmm. Playing that half-orc bard or playing, I don't know, any anything that had a negative in it. Playing something that needed that stat yeah. to progress in the class. I did notice that because 4th edition was very upfront about talking about its math, I did run into a lot of people that played 4th edition that were very upset if they couldn't get their maximum stat in their class's favorite thing because they thought that was going to throw the math off way too much, which 4th edition was very tuned to certain things, but I played in Eladrin Paladin, which was not an optimal choice, but I had fun with it. So did you have any favorite 4th uh, edition species? Yeah, I I played a very first character I made in 4th edition was a half-elf thief. I then made a human invoker. Uh, and then my all-time favorite, a changeling <laughs> thief, changeling rogue, just absolutely adored what I did with all three of those characters. But the changeling rogue is the one where my, my heart lives. <laughs> also, I, I have to add this. One of my fondest memories of fourth edition was when they were doing a lot of the promotion. There was this animated clip on the internet that was an interview between a tiefling and a gnome talking about the fact that they switched places <laughs> as a playable race and one found in the monster manual. And for the longest time, the I'm a monster Rawr! was quoted in my group constantly. I still love the, the picture of the, the gnome picture picking up the badger and going, I have a minion. I have a minion. <laughs> and this poor, very confused looking badger. Yeah. My favorites in fourth edition were um, my Eladrin paladin, which I mentioned, and I had a minotaur rune priest. <laughs> so I enjoyed both of those. During 4th edition, I wasn't playing D&D as much. I was running a lot of Pathfinder, but I did enjoy playing 4th edition. The Eladrin was one that I played most of the time, all the time, but my Minotaur got brought out for special occasions and I I really liked I really liked my very gruff, very quick to anger Minotaur. And the other thing that I did notice too in 4th edition that was interesting is a lot of what you did get, too, wasn't just the ability score bonus or something that was always on. A lot of species got basically a power that was a lot like your class power. And that was kind of fun because one of the reasons I liked the Eladrin is because I could teleport places. Yeah. Was it called Misty Step or was it called something else? I think it might have been Misty Step. I think so. But yeah. I think that was my first yeah, I could experience sh- with Misty Step. I could short range teleport to get next to something. And then, you know, mark it so that it couldn't go attack my friends because I was a paladin. So that was fun. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Before we talk about 5th edition, I kind of wanted to go over what we found out in our informal poll when we asked people what species they like to play and why. This did not have as many answers as I would have liked because social media right now is a train wreck. I have no idea where to ask questions or how to get people to see things. It's all a nightmare right now. I hope someday you're listening to this podcast from five years from now and there is one perfect social media platform where everyone is loved and respected and can communicate well. I think that's a little bit too much of a hope, (laughs) but like, let's hope that it's not the train wreck that it is now. Yes. Thank you, Elon. (laughs) So 
Um, what we found out is, in general, 28% of people prefer to stick with player's handbook species in 5th edition that responded to our poll. 13% are okay with everything that WotC puts out. 6% would rather use third-party options, for example, stuff from like Cobalt Press. 53%, which is the vast majority, are like, whatever makes sense for the campaign. Like, I'm not going to say all of these things are okay all the time, but depending on the campaign, we might you know, open up options or close off other ones. We got 15 votes for people playing humans, which was the highest number of votes. So still like they're humans. We got 12 votes for mountain dwarves. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Warforged and half elves were tied at nine. Wood elves got eight votes. Halflings got seven votes and everyone else got six or fewer. 69% of people did not associate species with a particular class anymore. And 59% of people say that they chose their species for narrative reasons rather than mechanical reasons. So given that we didn't get a whole lot of responses, um, what do you think of these results, Ange? I do wish we could have gotten a wider audience, but I don't know that more people would have skewed the results to anything drastically different. So when Larian Studios initially put out Baldur's Gate 3 as a beta... Mm -hmm. They, very soon after it was released for initial play, kind of came out with a complaint slash reprimand to their players (laughs) because they had put all of this work into this game, allowing people to play a wide variety of species with a wide variety of options. And they had something like 75% of their player base playing Human dudes with blonde hair and blue eyes. I remember that post. Like, what What are you guys doing? <laughs> Don't quote me on those specifics. But I do think it is, it is a point that humans end up being the most predominant in most of these things, even when we have options. I also think there really are, at this point in 5th edition, too many options to really define a serious ranking. Not that I think having all of these options is a bad thing. I love how 5e has blown open the doors on what is available for people to play. I think you especially see it in younger groups where they're not afraid to play the weirder species and mix it all up. You still have some folks from Jared in my age group who are grognards and are a little more afraid of doing anything beyond the, you know, human, elf, dwarf, halfling mix. Uh, but younger, younger, newer players are like, oh, hell yeah, I'm going to play that Herringon monk. Uh, you know, like, I'm, I'm going to play a turtle bard. Actually, I really do want to play a turtle bard, but we'll get there. So, yeah, I, yeah, I wish we had gotten some better responses. But like I said, social media is just a mess right now. And... I don't know where to even go to to farm these things out. Um, I do think it is true that on one hand, I think there is a much higher percentage of people that like to play weirder species. Um, and I think part of that is because what what has informed their enjoyment of fantasy has a broader range than I think it did back in the 80s and 90s. I think you have a lot more people that, you know, have watched animated series and anime and all sorts of other things. And that's bringing in these ideas like, you know, of course I want to play a rabbit person. I've seen, you know, Usagi Yojimbo, you know, it's that sort of, you know, thought process there. But I also think you're always going to have 
a certain percentage of people that are just more comfortable being human because they know what it's like to be human ostensibly. Right. Uh, <laughs> I like how um, if you look at Critical Role's first season, you pretty much have the standard array of species other than you have a Goliath in the mix. But you had the elf, you had the halfling, you had a gnome, and then the rest were like a mix of humans, half-elves, whatever. Um, but then you get to their second season, and suddenly you've got, you know, some tieflings, and a goblin, and a, oh, what's, what's their, their, Furbolg. <laughs> I can never remember their names when I need it. Um, you suddenly have this wider mix of species, and like, I think that's kind of, you know, it's, it's a good representation of how I think the hobby has changed and progressed. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. And it's even more interesting when you start seeing like some of the species that people are playing when they guest star on the show, too. <laughs> like Chris Perkins going on the show and playing a kobold that didn't last for very long. <laughs> <laughs> so what are some of your favorite species in, to play in 5th edition? I was pleasantly surprised by my Dragonborn. She was one of the early characters I played in 5th edition. I want to say that campaign started in 2015, mm -hmm. uh, and Zalus was a lot of fun to play. Oddly, I've also actually settled into enjoying humans as a choice. <laughs> in previous editions, it always felt like humans was what I chose because it was the only option available. Yeah. Whereas now it's like it's a choice I make for reasons. Two of my long-term characters Dove, the sorcerer, and Selena, the fighter, are both humans, and it's because that's what worked for those characters. <laughs> you know, I also cannot pass up a moment to mention the tabaxi, because cats are awesome, <laughs> and Sapphire should have gotten more playtime. <laughs> I like Sapphire. And let's not forget Tieflings, because Kazina is also a ton of fun. <laughs> Speaking of the uh, campaign that Sapphire was in... I love Furbolgs. I have always loved Furbolgs. Fifth edition has leaned a lot more on them being fae who happen to be giants instead of giants that have a fae connection, you know, which yeah. is kind of what they were in earlier editions. But I still love Furbolgs and, you know, they are giant adjacent, therefore I'm going to love them. Yeah, they're fun. And I love that Goliaths are just basically, I mean, not only do they did they really seem like an option that took off with people once they appeared in books, but now it looks like they're going to be a standard option in the 2024 books too. So that's kind of cool. I like that. <laughs> so what are some of the changes in species that we saw at the beginning of fifth edition? And I'm going to specify the beginning because there was a big transition a couple years ago. Yeah. To be completely honest, I don't really remember anything spectacularly different with the species, they kind of picked up some of what they had been doing in 4th edition as far as the no negative mm -hmm. stats, continued that on. And I think it's unrelated to species, but the biggest change in character creation for 4th edition was the addition of backgrounds. Yeah. Um, and that in and of itself, when you combine it with a species, can make for some very interesting choices. Mm -hmm. But I don't remember anything unique or specific about the species at the beginning of fifth edition that stood out to me yeah i'm trying i'm trying to think i don't think there was a huge overall push across the board it is interesting because for some of the things that fifth edition did standardize 
you did have some species that were just species, then you had some species that had subspecies underneath them. Right. Which was interesting and kind of gave them some fits later on when they wanted to um, play with that mechanically with some other things, because not everybody had subspecies, and that kind of made it harder to play with some of these rules. The one big thing I would say is that nobody is level-adjusted now. Basically, right. if they if they were going to make a version that is playable for players, they usually did things like saying, you don't get this ability until your third level, or you don't get this mm -hmm. ability until your fifth level. There was no, you're going to trail behind the rest of the party until, you know, you get to this point. And you could argue some of those abilities make them seem a little bit more powerful, but also by the time you're fifth level and you are a Kokra can fly, is that really a lot different than what the rest of the party can do with their other options? Right. I think that's probably the main thing, that they weren't trying to be punitive if one species looked a little bit more powerful. They were just saying, let's just build this as a player species and not worry about making sure they have every single bell and whistle that works exactly the same way as the monster version of this character does. Yeah. So what are some of the evolving changes that we've seen in D&D as we move into these uh, 2024 rules? They have continued the trend away from species having narrow definitions of what mechanical benefits they provide. Tasha's offered the option to vary up where your stat bumps went to better fit the narrative of a given character rather than the whole species. Now, arguments could be made and have been made by people that elves should have a high dex or dwarves must have a high constitution, but there can still be exceptions to the rules, and that can make for an interesting narrative. Nothing is saying players can't continue to have those stereotypical bumps related to the species and their stats, but maybe now they can play a sickly dwarf if they want, mm -hmm. or a charming half-orc, or a clumsy elf. It's like whatever fits the individual character's storyline rather than the preconceived notion of those species. Not to mention, they have been slowly, slowly <laughs> working away from cultural definitions of a species. You know, not all gnomes must be tinkers. Not all orcs must be primitive or evil. You know, it's it's they have slowly started moving away from that. One of the things that I think sometimes gets lost when people look at ability score bonuses and say, well, some species are different. And, you know, the problem is, to some extent, no matter how we can how much we can say these are different species, these are all humanoids and they're all measured with the same types of stats. And it tells a certain story when you're saying biologically, some are smarter than others. Biologically, some of them are healthier than others. That is yeah. telling a story with a narrative that might go beyond what you even intend when you're talking about species. And on top of that, it is just as easy to say, instead of giving orcs a plus two to strength, give them powerful build because they're taller with broad shoulders. Yeah, they can carry more. Yeah. But if you're measuring strength to strength, you know, you could still have an elf that is stronger than, than an orc. It's not, you know, a, a given. They're not born a specific way that determines what the right. rest of their life is going to be like. And I honestly, I think the design space with giving people a more active thing that their species can do rather than a passive thing like a bonus to an ability score is more fun. Mm -hmm. Like I like, you know, things like the furbolg being able to speak with animals rather than getting a bonus to something. You know, it's just yeah. things like that are more fun to play with than just saying, well, I am the most optimized barbarian I can be. 
are there any species that you haven't played yet in fifth edition but you still want there are too many to count <laughs> i really want to play an aarakocra named jarnathan i think that would be a hoot uh and as i mentioned as i alluded to earlier after my group spent a large chunk of a session debating on the musical preferences of the tortles i kind <laughs> of really want to play a tortle bard now uh-huh and i also have a feeling i'm gonna want to play a gift yankee after playing Baldur's gate 3 in brandis's campaign that i've been playing which i only get to do about maybe once a month or so but i started playing a gith yankee circle of stars druid and basically you know he crashed on this planet and you know he looks to the stars to try and guide him since he's been you know stranded on this planet and i'm really liking playing this gith yankee and being able to throw out some of these weird like alien you know vibes from this character but that's one that i've gotten to play not one that i hope that i can play for some reason, going all the way back to second edition, when I read an article in Dragon Magazine, I have liked this idea of snow elves because there was an ar article in there about snow elves and how they were like the species that was like, you know, way up north and they were isolated from other elves. And I don't know why, but that idea has always been cool to me. And Kobold Press even has snow elves in the uh, Tome of Heroes. <laughs> so someday I still want to play a snow elf because for some reason that seems cool. I don't know why literally cool exactly <laughs> <laughs> the other one that i love is from van richten's guide to ravenloft and that is the hex blood because they can do creepy stuff like cutting off a body part and leaving it with someone and then you know reattaching it later on when you know when it's done its job <laughs> i just love the weirdness of that of that species and i would love to get to play one that is, sounds absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> it's like, I need you to be able to communicate with me. Here, let me cut off my pinky. <laughs> Carry this with you. <laughs> oh my goodness, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> so wrapping up our talk about species, we're moving into our downtime research segment. No time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. Every episode, we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass along to the listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, or podcasts, but it will always be something that we think will enhance your D&D experience. Now, while I will not be attending, not <laughs> long after this episode drops, Gen Con is going to be happening. Yep. And Gen Con is, it is an experience that I think all socially hardy gamers should experience at least once in their lifetime <laughs> it is huge and it has a lot going on and there's a fair amount of D, &D related stuff happening there so i'm not gonna be there i can't do gen con anymore it exhausts <laughs> me but i wanted to let you know that it is coming very soon after this episode drops i have anxiety issues and i've been to gen con and i will say while it was worth it it was probably one of the things that helped me realize I have anxiety issues. <laughs> For me, the it wasn't the anxiety issues. It was the physical issues because Gen Con is physically huge. Yes. Um, I was, you know, running games on the field of Lucas Oil Stadium and then having to walk blocks and blocks to get to where my friends were at the JW Marriott on the far side of the convention center. This doesn't sound like we're promoting it as much I as... I know, I know, but seriously, if you, if you, Gen Con is worth doing at least once in your lifetime, 
if you are a, a nerd and you don't mind crowds. If you can handle Disney World, you should be able to handle Gen Con. It is an interesting thing to measure all of your other con experiences against because even though I know it has grown like exponentially since I was there, it is still larger than any other con I've ever been to. Like I can still go to like Gamehole Con, which is a moderately good sized con now, and it still is not like Gen Con at all. <laughs> even Origins is not like Origins is probably the closest gaming convention to Gen Con, and they're still in 2019, before the pandemic, they were still half the size yeah. of Gen Con. And that was before the pandemic cut everybody's numbers off at the knees. I would tell everyone that they should walk the dealer hall, but really you will slowly shuffle the dealer's hall <laughs> behind other people. Unless you happen to go like in the middle of the day when there just happens to be most people in their actual, you know, in their actual events. But that dealer's hall is just. It is both amazing and amazingly frustrating. <laughs> Do the dealer's hall right as the food trucks open up. <laughs> also, if you want to see something fascinating, get up on the second story of, uh, of the convention center and look down on the doors to the dealer's hall right before they get ready to open them and see that throng of people just rushing in there. <laughs> My very first year at Gen Con was 2006, and I am not a morning person, and I am not a shopper, so I really didn't have that much interest in the dealer's hall, but first time there, I was with a friend. He wanted to be there for the opening of the dealer's hall, so I kind of sleepily followed along mm -hmm. behind him, and to get out of the crowd, I kind of walked up some steps and sat down on the steps, and it was pretty wild watching the throng of people waiting for, I think, I think that was actually the last year Gary Gygax was there, and he threw a ceremonial foam D20 to roll it <laughs> for the opening of the doors, and then the doors opened and everyone went inside, and I got in line for um, Order of the Stick to get a, an Elon pin, along with some magnets. <laughs> and it was the first day of the con, and there was still somebody in line who hadn't bathed. Yeah, that amazes me when it's like, no, you can't have con funk on the first day of the con. That's, yeah. that's just wrong. Don't have con funk on the first day of the con. Anyway, we're not talking down Gen Con. It's, it's <laughs> no, cool, no. seriously. No, yeah. Okay, moving on. Yes, yes. Since we're talking about species this time around, I wanted to call out some really unique 5th edition options. Wright Publishing put out a series of in-the-company-of products for Pathfinder, making some unlikely species playable by giving them that savage species-like level progression. Brandis Stoddard, friend of the show, uh, converted some of these for use in D&D 5e, including in the Company of Giants and in the Company of Unicorns. These 5th edition options give you the option of using the class that represents the species, but unlike savage species, you don't have to take the entire progression of the class it just makes you more of what you were going to be anyway, but you can just take the base species and be whatever else you want to be. So if you just want to be a unicorn paladin and you don't want to take any levels in legendary unicorn, you can be a unicorn paladin. If you just want to be a Jotunar ranger, you can just take that. And, you know, with the Jotunar, basically you turn, you go from being like a half giant into basically being a full, you know, full frost giant or, you know, fire giant or whatever. But you can just be that half giant and, you know, play that out. So I think those are both very interesting products to check out. Where else is, are you going to have somebody, you know, give you the ability to play a unicorn paladin? 
Or you don't have to be a unicorn paladin. You could be a unicorn rogue that's an assassin. I don't know. I'm not going to tell you what your unicorn can be. I want to be a unicorn paladin named Maxis. <laughs> Maximus, sorry. Yes. <laughs> we are happily part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network, so we wanted to give a shout out to another MMP show. If you're enjoying our show, also consider checking out... The Gnomecast! Hey, I know this one. Several <laughs> gnomes from Gnome Stew get together to talk about gaming topics and themselves in an effort to entertain you and avoid being thrown in the stew. What, what are they going to get thrown in? Huh? What are they going to get yeah, thrown in? Yeah, I know, Jared. Where's the pot, Jared? <laughs> this will only make sense to those that listen to the Gnome Cast. Crossover. <laughs> We've used up all of our resources. Boy, have we. So I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you. We hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure.